1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Megan Leahy. She's the on-parenting columnist for The Washington Post and a certified parenting coach. She's also the author of Parenting Outside the Lines. Forget the rules, tap into your wisdom, and connect with your child. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, three school-age daughters, and her dog. Welcome, Megan. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with what it means to parent outside the lines. Geez, you know,
2: I wrote the book and then the title. I've been doing it a long time. And when people want to solve problems, there's a lot of trends and theories in parenting, and they get really hot and they co-opt the narrative. And it's not that they're bad or good, right? Outside of like whooping your kids and shaming them. I have a really low bar, you know, but I like to say one kid's medicine is another kid's poison. And so I just wanted people to just like,
0: stop, stop buying parenting books. Ironically, (laughs) stop listening to experts. But don't stop listening to parenting podcasts. That would be a huge mistake. Don't stop listening to this podcast in (laughs) particular. Um,
2: I wanted to write a book that I had really high aspirations. I just didn't want it to make anyone feel like crap. I wanted people to have a little bit of a laugh and kind of get to basics.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we're joking about, of course, everyone will always continue listening to our podcast, <laughs> but I think one of the reasons we want to have you on is this seems very familiar to us in terms of our approach because a lot of prescriptive parenting advice, which is there is a one size fits all parenting approach that will work for all kids is something that we are constantly pushing back against. And so, I mean, I think it comes from a natural place, right? It comes from a place where moms want some certainty, right? I mean, that's kind of a universal feeling that we have. And how do you tackle that in the book? Like this need, reconciling this need to want answers with this feeling that there really are not prescriptive answers that someone's going to give you that'll work for all kids. Right.
2: Yeah. You know, if you didn't have some kind of primal need to support or help your child, that would be problematic. Right. Right. So we are designed as mammals to acutely feel our offspring's suffering mm. and do something about it. That is not a fault in the system. Our big brains, though, are super problematic, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so you know, when I talk to parents and a little bit in the book, we're never going to get rid of that need, and I don't want anyone to. You're not a robot, you shouldn't be a robot. It's kind of just reality testing where the need and your fears intersect
1: mmm. That's an interesting way to say it. And some of it is externally induced upon us too, isn't it? Like it seems to me that the sort of uncertainty that we feel is what keeps us looking and buying books and trying harder and, you know, buying more Lego organizers, right? Yeah. That uncertainty is being sold to us, that we're not doing it right is being sold to us. So we'll buy the next thing.
2: Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing because we used to be in community, such that we were with our elders and wise people. And we raised our children with our aunties and our mom and our grandma and our community. And there was a single kind of approach, even if that approach wasn't working <laughs> to some extent, but there was a knowing in that and a wisdom passed down in almost every culture except American, right? Because almost every other culture has a long history of a mono kind of culture. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, post-World War II, when everyone kind of really set out for the suburbs and the rise of childhood began, right? This obsession with our children began. We moved away from our people. We moved away from this kind of like longstanding group effort of raising people. And we became very isolated in our Communities. So we were with people, but we weren't with people, right? You kind of pulled your car into your garage, shut the door, and then fought in your house while you hung up your pretty decorations. So everybody started suffering alone. And so when you realize actually everyone's suffering, but when it's all kind of kept inside, I kind of stepped into a role where I'm not a better parent than anybody else. I've just learned some things. I just, you know, have information, right? I have guideposts, but I feel like I'm just like that person in the community where you gut check things against.
1: And is that what a parenting coach is? I was interested when you said, I didn't want to be a therapist. I wanted to be a coach. And I thought, I'm not sure I know exactly what the difference is.
2: They should minimum have, I think, a a master's degree in a therapeutic field, psychology, development, childhood development, minimum. Um, You're not going to find that because anybody can hang a shingle. Mm. But you are working with both known and unknown diagnoses. My job is to never diagnose, but my job is to hear it, right? You are working with family systems, which is an entire therapeutic field. We are now realize pretty much everyone's traumatized as to what level. So you need to have minimum trauma-informed coaching. You need to, and then the actual coaching model they need to have a good model. So you have the background information that one should have. And then you have to have actually good practice at coaching because people will lead with their biases because we all have them. But if they're not aware of that, they're just doing more damage.
0: And is the role of the parenting coach to bring in specific skills and kind of operating systems to help whatever is kind of going off the rails within that family structure?
2: Mm, No, my role is to listen acutely, is to teach the parents how to listen and to spot patterns and what those mean. I specifically work in attachment, which is not attachment parenting. I'm interested in how two humans join together to facilitate growth, in this case, from parent to child. So I'm going to look at the patterns in your house that are working and not working that facilitate relationship.
1: And do you, I'm curious if the person would come to you, say, and say, like, this isn't what's working in my house, or is it yeah. more often that you, like, I think what's not actually working is this. I suppose it's probably some of both, right? That somebody knows what the problem is and somebody does not.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I really never have any idea, right? The parent is always an unreliable witness or unreliable narrator, just like I am of my own family. Right. Wow. Right? Yeah. Yep. So I am both listening for what the actual problem is from them, and I'm listening for what they don't know. So right there, that's coaching. Yeah. Right? It's to be able to listen on both levels. When I was a crappier coach in the beginning, I would try and fix that problem. My kid doesn't go to bed. My team won't turn off the tech. Okay, let's develop stuff to get your kid to teen- turn off the tech. Okay. And then what was underneath is that these people hated each other. Mm. <laughs> ideas were ever going to work. Right. And then it became one more thing. The parent failed, which made them go buy another book, which made them fail. Right. Yes. So now that I'm better at it, I will be like, okay, the tech is the problem. Right. Let's start working on it, but we're going to work on it from a relationship angle Mm. first.
0: Mm. Right. We talk sometimes like the iceberg, the tech is the tip of the iceberg and you're getting down under underneath it.
2: Listen, and you know, it's not rocket science, although people want things to be more complicated. Nobody wants to cooperate for someone to whom they're not connected. Right. Right. So if my best friend calls me right now in a crisis, I'm hanging up with you and I'm going, mm-hmm. right? Right. Like a crisis. If the guy down the street that I don't know calls in a crisis, I'll be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> not so much. I'm not connected to you. Now I'm a good human. So like, I'll do what I can. But like, The issue is not the request. The issue is the relationship.
0: Let's take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to tap into this as
1: it relates to the book Parenting Outside the Lines. We'll be right back after this. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. So we're talking to Megan Leahy. She's a parenting coach and the author of Parenting Outside the Lines. Megan, in the book, you say that most of our parenting problems come not from a lack of awareness, but a lack of connection. And it seems to me that that's sort of what you were just saying in the first segment.
2: Yeah. And when I say connection, people are like, I love my kid. Right. Of course you do. I have literally never met a parent who didn't love their kid. Even parents who are doing horrible things to their kids, love their kids. It's a little bit of a messy soup. If you don't think about it too much, you can get it right. If you think about it too much, you'll get it wrong, Mm. right? But there's the way we attach to our kids and then the way they receive the attachment. And sometimes the two aren't clicking.
0: Can you give us an example of that? Like, How does that play out? Oh my God, yeah. So.
2: I have a 14 year old. I have three girls 11, 14, and almost 18. I want to attach to my 14 year old through like deep conversation and, you know, the way I want to. The way you used to. The way I attached to my 18 year old. And the way I actually need to attach to her is being around her. So getting her into a car, going somewhere, seeing something interesting but letting the space build which means not inserting
1: my constant conversation or need to have her talk to me. I'm taking notes here as a mother of a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah. Mental notes. This sounds like
0: conversations I've had with Amy for sure. Yeah. Again, am I attaching to her and do
2: I love her? Yeah is she receiving my attachment when I'm like, so let's talk about all your inner thoughts? No, right? Instead, it's, you know, like we did like a thing where for a couple weekends in a row, we tried out brunch spots in DC that were allowing us to eat outside. It was high COVID. And we didn't really talk much. We just walked and looked at the people and then sat and ate. And then after a couple of hours, right? Mm. Right. But that is a form of relationship that I work with my parents on, which is, you know, what are you giving? How is it being received? And vice versa, right? Like, is our kid actually trying to attach to us, but it just, we don't see it. We don't feel it.
0: This is such a good point and something that I think that I haven't heard it talked about in exactly this way, because I think we understand this idea of connection being important, but I think the idea... I have a kid who's on the spectrum, and like the attachment looks really different than it does Mm -hmm. with other kids, and we recently took a 30-hour train trip together. We went on an overnight train. And it was a lot of time of the two of us just sitting together, looking out the window of the train. And I find that when I'm like, isn't this fun? We're having a great time. Did you see that? Did you see this? That starts to be very annoying. Like I'm kind of getting in the way of the experience, but there is a certain self-confidence I almost had to come to in myself that that's parenting too, sitting quietly on a train with my kid, for 30 hours, that is me doing a good job, that the good job doesn't come when I'm determined that I'm going to make it special by adding a lot to the experience. And I think that disconnect is something that is really interesting to me. And I have to kind of put a fine point on it. Like, attachment doesn't always mean talking. You
2: know, that's a really beautiful example. We talk in the coaching, we really work on this. And a lot of times, too, it breaks my heart a little bit, is that the parents are are doing so many things. They just don't even realize it, right? That sometimes sitting in the room with, listening ad infinitum about the game, you know, these little things are attachment. So we attach in all five senses. There's five, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are. You know, eye contact, touching, smells. Right. Our smell is one of our deepest, it's an older part of the brain. Right. So the other senses are up here. But when you smell something, it actually brings you to a more primitive place. Right. Which is why it can evoke like in different ways. And that's a form of attachment. And when we work with kids who are especially don't fall into the neurotypical, which now we're starting to realize like, who is this magic neurotypical kid? Yeah,
0: right. exactly.
2: It's also that kid that like got their period at the exact right day, right? Like grew their breasts the right time, got taught, right? Yes. All the things. There's just one kid that we're all chasing. But we're starting to realize more and more that everybody's different.
0: Yeah. Everybody's different. When you talk about the senses, attachment is also walking in the door and smelling dinner cooking, like there's an attachment there that is different than the attachment of like, I'm standing at the door with my five questions that I read in a parenting book or the five things that I should be asking my kid when they walk home that we're always on this podcast trying to give people less to do and to acknowledge the many things that people are already doing that are working. Correct. And I think that we get turned around in the tumble dry of parenting advice with forget that cooking and forget playing with your kid, forget listening to them talk about Roblox. That's not important. What's important is these five questions that you're going to ask them every day to attach. And you don't want to miss the solutions for looking for them.
2: Yeah, and all I do is provide, you know, first a bird's eye view and then we go in. Bird's eye view, then we go in. And I really, like you said, I love to highlight what the parents are already doing that they don't even know. Mm. I'm like, look, you're already in terms of connection, you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All the different things because our you know, our culture really works on a deficit model. You know, like what's next, what's more, what can be improved. And I'm kind of like, yeah, this isn't good enough. You know, what are we going for? Like 24-hour happiness? That's not possible. Our job is to raise humans to their fullest maturation point. And that is, as soon as sperm meets egg, that's the child with Downs, that's the child on the spectrum, that's the child ADHD, that's all these kids, right? And all your job is to bring them to their fullest oak tree. You're actually not in charge of how that oak tree looks. Your job is to just garden them until they can make it there. And kind of to your point, too, one of the interesting things I didn't think I'd be working with, which is a bit in the book, too, is, you know, for a long, I'm getting old now and my clients are getting younger. I'm definitely one of those people. But I was raised in a bit of the like, seen not heard, you know, feral child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, I just don't even know how many of us made it. I was born in 75 and I just, I don't know. And now people are obsessed with their kids. So the majority of my coaching is around the positive parenting, conscious parenting. So if your kid hit you back in the day, first of all, it wouldn't have. Wouldn't have happened. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because you would have been whooped. <laughs> yep. Right. You would have been smacked into the next century. And then that was, turned out to be bad, which it is. And then, okay, we sent them to the rooms and that was bad. And then we put them on steps, right? Timeout, And that's bad. And then it kind of swung into this thing where I have parents who are being abused by their kids verbally and physically, right? And so Jimmy hits you in the face, you know, Jimmy, when you hit me in the face, that makes me feel. So now I'm working mostly with parents who don't have any boundaries with their kids, who are afraid of rules. Everything has to be talked out. Can you imagine chronically talking things out with a three-year-old? No. Everything has to be, it's like the oprah like what's under it? What's under it? Just tell the kid, no, let them cry and walk away.
1: That seems to me to be sort of like so you're saying like seeking connection is the most important thing and we have to seek connection. But it sounds to me like maybe you can sort of over chase that as a goal. Is that what you're saying? Like not when they're having a temper tantrum? Yeah. Connection lo- also looks like a boundary. Oh, ah, OK. So if you see
2: boundaries as aiding the maturation process because the prefrontal cortex can't make good decisions in kids. So what you're doing is you are acting as their prefrontal cortex, then a boundary is a form of love. A boundary is a form of connection. It just doesn't feel good. Okay. So when you are telling your tween or teen, like, no, you can't do that. You're putting down boundaries. Like, no, I do have to know where you are. I do have to know where you're going. Right. And they slam themselves against the boundary. That's a form Mm. of connection. It just comes later. This is like a long game. Right. So the kid isn't gonna turn to you and be like, wow, thanks. Thanks, mom. (laughs) That was so helpful. (laughs) And kind of going back to where we started in the beginning, because we're raising our kids in isolation with the added horrors of social media, it feels bad and then we're alone. Right. And if parents, dads too, don't have a cohort of people to turn to and say, like, this sucks, right? There's a message that first of all, there's something wrong with the kid. There's something wrong with you. You're the only one holding the boundaries. And it's the isolation that kills us, not the problems.
0: Let's take a break. We're talking to Megan Leahy, the author of Parenting Outside the Line, and we're going to talk more about boundaries right after this.
1: So, Megan, in the book, you talk about drive-by parenting, and I wanted to ask you about what that means and why we should avoid it.
2: Every parent does this to some extent. I guess there's some, like, major amazing parents that don't, but this is when you are a combination of kind of overwhelmed, resentful, or exhausted, which is me, like, 90% of the time. And rather than kind of be proactive, you just walk by kids and yell things at them. Guilty as
1: charged. And this is a bad thing? (laughs) Heck yeah. You know, like, why are the shoes on the floor?
2: Leave your brother alone. How long have you been watching Vampire Diaries? (laughs) I think you're too young for that. What are you doing? Right, And you do it to everything. Your spouse, your dog, the kids. As you walk by your... Really starting to unload more the kids, depending on how good they've gotten at ignoring you, have made all kinds of motions, like uh-huh,, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, five minutes or uh-huh mm-hmm. depending on your relationship, they are outright ignoring you or they start doing the opposite, which is when you really are like, "Oh, snap And this is really if we can just even stop doing that, if we can just stop giving commands and demands to people from another room or while you walk by them, you will save yourself so much pain. And then you'll say, well, how will anything get done? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Then you need to have like a family meeting or a one-on-one or even just text people a list or can I see everyone in the dining room at six o'clock or whatever, right? Let's go grab a hot chocolate. And you sit there. So listen, I'm afraid for your room. I think it's going to catch on fire. And I saw a rat like whatever. Okay. If we can just stop that in the moment, right? Cause our brain is telling us that we're having a crisis, a shoe crisis, a coat crisis, a tech crisis, a homework crisis, but there's not. Mm. I mean, unless someone's going to die and I mean, die or have serious dismemberment, everything else can wait. And I mean, everything, school, everything. But our brain doesn't know that, right? If we're overwhelmed and tired, we don't know that.
0: And this is because the flip side of this is just becoming kind of the wall of noise, that you're just kind of the constant jack-in-the-box that's like squawking and squawking, and then you become kind of invisible to everyone. Is that correct?
2: Right. And that chapter is really about how you train your kids to ignore you and then blame them for ignoring you.
0: Mm. Amy had a dog trainer tell her a long time ago, if you tell the dog to sit five times, the dog thinks the command to sit is the fifth time you say it. And like, that's kind of this same point, right? And I had someone said to me very long ago, I say the best piece of parenting advice I ever got, saying no means standing up. So like, you can't parent from the couch, from the other room, you have to walk over. Stop that in there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes.
2: Oh, I'm a floor to floor girl. I love screaming from the second floor to the basement because I grew up in a floor to floor parenting. <laughs> Although my father was hysterical, so my mom would just parent from any room. She like, them Okay. If you scream something to my dad, like dad, I need that he literally would not respond. If I was like, I fell and broke my arm, I need you. You had to go to him with your broken arm. And then he would speak to you because he's like, that is uncivilized. Yes. What you people are doing. And he tuned us all out. I hope that I would be like more like my dad. I'm not. But it turns out if you practice shutting up, Mm. you can do it.
1: So can I talk about, let's use the example of we're all, you know, stuck home a lot this winter. Kids are everywhere, right? Like masks, some online schools, uh-huh. dishes everywhere, shoes everywhere, junk yep. everywhere. You're the only one that leaves a room taking something that doesn't belong in that room with you, right? And you're feeling that, as you say, the shoes are like... Seething resentment and anger explosively. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> And we're not going to say, who's choosing these? Why am I the only one? Like, we're not going to do that. So what mm-hmm. are we going to do that's not swallowing the resentment and doing it ourselves? There's a third way.
2: Yeah. So I'm a big, big, big fan. In the book, I mean, I just do some really basic like family meeting stuff. I'm a huge. I actually like wrote to my editor. Uh, it was like, <laughs> can I write a book about family meetings? But like, what a snooze. Even when I'm like, oh, that sucks. But Ross Green is really, really great. He wrote The Explosive Child. I'm a big fan of his. He really works kind of the school sector, but a lot of parenting stuff too. And so plan A, it's the parent's way. It has to happen. The parent is calling the shots. And this is reserved for two crises, fire, dismemberment, death, right? Plan B is co-creating solutions and plan C is punting. Mm. And punting doesn't mean giving up. It means prioritizing. Right. So plan B, right, would be to recognize that you have a problem. Your problem is, is that your house is a crap hole and there's crap everywhere and you feel unappreciated. And then you would continue to look at, okay, get down to doable things. So then you decide we have a problem with dishes in all the rooms. Okay. Then you call everyone And you say, I've noticed we have a problem with dishes in the rooms. Not, John, you are a pig and you treat this house like a crappy cafeteria. Like we're just saying what the problem is. And then you ask the kids, what's up with this?
1: This is an important question. I want to do a shout out to Stacy Haynes as a psychologist who is one of Ross Green's sort of primary sort of soldiers in this method. And we had her as a guest on the show. So I'll put a link in the show notes because she walks through this plan A, plan B, plan C, because it's complicated until you get the hang of it. But it's such a great idea.
2: Well, what I love about this question, though, and kind of how it ties back to the attachment is that when you say to your kids, I've noticed we have a plate problem. There's a dirty plate in every room. What's up with this? It gives your kid's a chance to say, oh my gosh, I know. I'm always in class and I bring in my lunch because I always want to be there. And then I forget. And what you start to do is that you see that your kids are not monsters plotting against you.
0: (laughs) Although it feels that way much (laughs) of the time.
2: Right. And to be fair, right, you might get some kids that are arms folded. I don't care. Right. Which points to me about a relationship issue. Right. But If your kid says something like, I just keep having school in there and I'm forgetting and all my stuff's in there, right? They're starting to have this kind of lack of momentum feeling, right? They're just in their room, at their desk, surrounded by junk. And you say, oh yeah, I get it. It's hard. You get used to living around a mess and you're not really going from A to B. And I can see how this would happen, right? And now you are working in partnership with your child, right? and you say, how can we get the plates out? Is it every night at seven o'clock? I call out all plates in. Mm. Is it every morning? Is it, you know, I come in at noon and we do it together. Is it right? Yeah. And you let the kid generate the ideas. Now, if the kid folds their arms, like screw you and the horse you rode in on, you don't have a plate problem. You have a relationship problem. Right. Uh-huh. So then the problem you
0: now solve has to be like, how do I get this kid <laughs> to sit down and unfold their arms? We got to figure that out. And then where is the boundary in that, in terms of like, is the boundary that you're saying, plates in the rooms is unacceptable? Let's figure out how to fix it. Because sometimes it feels a little bit like you got to connect, but you also can't give in to everything. So, like, ha- where is the boundary piece of that puzzle?
2: Right. So that's a really good question. People will call me and say, "You know, we have these crises and these problems." And I use Sandy Lerman is an amazing coach who works specifically in the adoption trauma realm. Mm. Heavy heavy stuff, but she uses these factors to assess what's happening called lift. So you look at the problems, the length of the problem, the intensity, the frequency, and the triggers, okay? So, let's say you have a decent relationship with your kid and you're watching the bowls of goldfish go upstairs or to the room and you're like, this isn't working for me. And you say to the kid, you just got to sit here. You can even sit on the living room couch. Just stop. And you put down a boundary. Like, it's like, fine, right? Yeah. Solved. Solved. If you have the length, intensity, frequency, and trigger, right? Like Now we're looking at a patterned problem that maybe never got a boundary or the boundary isn't working, right? So if you're telling a kid, so you see this starts to get nuanced. Right. And a parent can start to panic. But if you work with the kid, you don't have to figure it out all on your own.
1: Because
2: mm. you can say to your kid, listen, I want a boundary where food goes nowhere. And they can say, that's a great boundary for you, but I have class and I have this, and I don't have the time to sit and eat your Cobb salad like for hours and do all your chores. Okay, great where's the new boundary?
1: Yeah. And within this is the something else I'm going to take away from your book, which is the power of humbling ourselves. Mm. I hear that about the dishes in the room, like, right, it is hard to be my kid right now. I'm not the only poor me in this house isn't me with the dishes, right? It's the kid too. And humbling yourself leads to connection. Yeah.
2: I have never seen anything like this. Nobody has. But I've been working with parents and families for over 20 years. And I've never worked with families on lowering the standards we have like we have now because of for mental health. So that plan C of prioritizing, we are talking about some very kind of rock bottom mental health, physical health issues, right? Some sleep, food, movement, Showering, right? And so, pre twenty nineteen, when you know the problem seemed more mm, just always what we knew, the homework, and and now I work with people. I'm like, no, we're not going to discuss homework.
0: <laughs> We've got some new. Part. The goalposts have shifted.
2: Correct. Like your kid is slipping away. Yeah, and you're talking about science. Like good news, science can be learned later. We actually need to start to move this child like out of their room in small doses or out of the bed or away from the tech or, right. And that's a hard thing for me too, to pivot toward. Yes. It's a hard thing for us to let go of what we think should be happening because it's scary because our insides tell us if I let some of these go, I'll never get it back. But that was a lie. This is not true.
0: It's comforting. It's putting stuff down. It's not learning and you got to study and you've got to feed your kids like the people in France do to be happy. It's putting stuff down.
2: And our own mental health is so precarious for some parents that, again, we're talking 101 human needs, right? Food, sleep, water, movement, friendship, hugging, right? Like 101 stuff. Because pushing through the rest, pushing through to
0: what? Yeah, there's nothing on the other side. (laughs) You just got to get through it.
2: Right. So it's sticky, but I find a lot of hope in that my brain is a big liar. Mm. Yeah. That what is real, like what is actually in front of me, I can trust mostly. And that what I really need to do is also right in front of me. And so all the stories that I keep worrying in my head, why we need to figure out, we need to do this, we need, no, no, no. Those are projections into a future I don't know about. So I'm not going to do that.
0: And there's so much of this in this book, Parenting Outside the Lines, Forget the Rules, Tap into Your Wisdom and Connect with Your Child by Megan Leahy. Megan, tell us where people can find you, find the book and your coaching. Yeah, mlparentcoach.com
2: is everything. My coaching, I have online classes. It'll be starting in April. The book. All my columns are online, although people are like, I can't afford the like two ninety nine a year to the Washington Post. I'm like, come on. <laughs> but all
1: my columns are on my website. So yeah, mlparentcoach.com. This has been a really useful conversation. Megan, thanks for talking to us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate y'all's time. Thank you.
1: Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd.
0: And guess what? Now Blair and Molly are back